Did you know that a small plant that grows wild in the Appalachian Mountain Forest named ginseng has shaped the fate and fortunes of millions of Americans over the past two and a half centuries? This is Dr. Luke Monjay, and I'll tell you all about the history of this fascinating plant in Dialogues with Creators with host Barbara Tucker. Luc Manger joined the faculty of Dalton State as assistant professor of history in 2018, and he specializes in Appalachian and environmental history. Luke is married to Natalie, and they have three sons, Henry, Charlie, and Jack. And what are their ages, Luke? Uh, Henry is 14, Charlie is 10, and Jack is 8. Oh, boy, you have a... Fun time, I bet, <laughs> with Keeps active boys. Are they into sports? Keeps me busy. Keeps me busy. Uh, yes. Um, they play soccer, gymnastics. Uh, the youngest one has done gymnastics. Okay. Uh, mostly soccer. They look like a lot of fun. I've seen them on campus. So, <laughs> Well, uh, we have a lot of questions for Luke today. Uh, I think this is going to be a fascinating discussion because it's going to be very wide ranging. And so I'd like him to start with, could you give us some information about your growing up, Luke? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, so I was born and raised in Georgia um, in uh, specifically Stone Mountain, then Decatur, then Conyers. And then uh, went to high school at Rockdale County High School and uh, went to Georgia Tech after that. I actually played football there um, for four years and as a place kicker, and then uh, then graduated and went to. Uh, I worked as a newspaper reporter actually for a couple of years, and then um, went to teach high school for five years at Murphy High School, Murphy, North Carolina. Then went back to grad school and had to, had kids, and went to Western Carolina for my master's, and UGA for my PhD, and then um, found my way back to Georgia. Oh, okay, okay. Then came so here. you've been to <laughs> Georgia Tech and University of Georgia. You is that a is that a problem? Sometimes it, it, it was a problem. Yes, uh, <laughs> in, it, it was a problem. Yes, uh, living in Athens um, as a former Georgia Tech football player was uh, was interesting. Okay, did you tell people about it? Or <laughs> no, usually they, I, I, they found out. Sometimes they found out. Yeah, okay. <laughs> sometimes my students found out, and it was it was uh, controversial. <laughs> Well, I, I saw a picture of you in your uh, regalia where you were standing under the arch. And I have to say that uh, my doctorate's from there, too. And I have not stood under the arch yet. Oh, I've got okay. to get back That's and right. wear the robe and stand under, walk through the arch or whatever I'm supposed to do. <laughs> uh, the day I graduated, we just we needed to get out of there. So. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> um, OK, well, there are a lot of reasons why I wanted to have uh, Luke as a guest on Dialogues for Creators. But the first one we're going to talk about is your just published book, Ginseng Diggers, uh, 2022, published by University Press of Kentucky. I want to read one of the reviews, and this is, uh, unfortunately, people call these blurbs uh, on the backs of books, but I'm going to read this one. This is from um, an author, Daniel S. Pierce. He says, on rare occasions, a book comes along that totally revises how we look at important historical issues. Luke Monjay's Ginseng Diggers is such a book 
providing crucial new insights into Appalachian subsistence practices. Manje opens up a whole new world of root and herb gathering, the business surrounding it, and the commons practices that made it possible. A must-read for scholars of Appalachia and anyone interested in the reasons region's culture and history. And I want to emphasize that last part. It's not just a book for people who teach Appalachian history or culture. And then another author wrote, with careful research and engaging prose, Luke Manjay unravels the fascinating story of American ginseng and those who harvested it and other medicinal plants from mountain forests. And that's from Timothy Silver, uh, another author. So um, I agreed with them. The reason I read those is I agreed with them and the others that are on the book. So let me start by saying that true, true confessions. I've read about half of the book and admittedly I skipped around a little bit, but I'll get back to the chapters about the post-Civil War and I'll get to, to why in a bit. But this book reads like a novel. If a person has any interest in Appalachia, this is the book to read. I learned so much about the settlement of Appalachia, the role of the Cherokee, the economic history, and the natural history of the region. And those are not even the main focus of the book, but you give so much background to set the stage of a topic of ginseng harvesting that I feel like I took a course in Appalachian history. So why Appalachia? How did you become and why did you become an expert in this region's history? Yeah, so um, my grandmother grew up in eastern Kentucky. And so I, I grew up kind of going back to that region every, every almost every summer for, for family reunions and, and that sort of thing. So I still have family up in that area. So, you know, I felt that kind of connection going way back. And uh, I also we also had a family place up in northeast Georgia that we went to mm-hmm. whenever we could, whenever we could get away. So, I mean, I, it just always captured my imagination. Um, so I love the region. And when I, you know, wanted or to try to figure out an area of history to focus on, um, I think Appalachia was just a natural way, natural place to go. I mean, it has a really fascinating history mm-hmm. um, that, that uh, that's, that's uh, that, like I said, really captured my imagination. So, mm-hmm. yeah. and, and I think one thing that people from another, other parts of the country don't realize that how beautiful it is because of some of the stereotypes of the poverty and all the other things that over the years, they just have missed the point of the beauty. But um, have you ever walked on the trail? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, so, some sections. Okay. Um, I have uh, not, not all of it. Maybe one day. Okay. It's a dream of mine, but I've walked on a lot of trails. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think I've done about a quarter of a mile. <laughs> no, there you go. <laughs> on the Appalachian Trail. That's a start. That's up a start. near uh, up near Gatlinburg somewhere. But and it does start not very far from here. That's, that's right. That's a, even that, just getting over to that part of the uh, couple counties over and um, seeing where it starts would be would be a fun thing to do. Yeah. And uh yes, and, and it is there's so much history and this so fascinating uh that uh, and it's so in diversity too, mm-hmm. biodiversity, but also ethnic ethnic diversity. People don't realize that's right, and that's that's, right. that's some unfortunate some of the 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 press, the stereotypes, whatever that have happened right. over the years. Right, which is which was kind of a, a central aim of the of the field of Appalachian history is kind of breaking down those stereotypes. Right. Um. So. Uh, 
more to the point of the book, why ginseng? <laughs> what fascinated you about that enough to do your dissertation research and to complete this book? Yeah, it's kind of a, a, a pretty narrow topic to write a whole dissertation and book on. But I, uh, I, I first saw a ginseng plant, I think when I was nine or 10 years old, I was in eastern Kentucky. My cousin showed it to me and seemed to make a huge deal about it. And uh, and my grandmother would tell me stories about how her her grandfather would, would go out and hunt ginseng. And, and it always just kind of fascinated me. Like you could just go out in the woods and find these plants and bring it back and sell it and make a lot of money. And so, I mean, I've always kind of remembered those stories. And then in grad school, I was trying to figure out a topic to write about. And I was interested in Appalachian history and, um, you know, looking at uh, kind of the post-Civil War era and how the the region uh, recovered or, or, you know, or not from the Civil War um, <clears throat> and kept seeing these references to ginseng in some of the sources I was looking at. And so when my first research question was, you know, how did the, how did, how did the, what, what kind of impacts did the Civil War have on the region? That was my first general broad topic or broad question. It quickly kind of morphed into, you know, what about this ginseng? How, what is the history of that trade? And, and I started looking at the, um, secondary sources on it and um, seeing what has been written on it. And basically, there's been very little um, on the history of the trade. I mean, if anything, there's a paragraph in some book, you know, on, on oh, you know, this is the history of the trade. But I mean, it, it had such a long history, as I found out, that there had to be more to it. There had to be more to the story. And, it, you know, at first I thought, well, maybe I could write an article on it, you know, just a, a short piece. But I, I ended up finding a, a lot more sources than I thought, and um, and it, and it, it, it uh, turned out to be enough to, to write a book. <laughs> Neat. Well, I mean, and you did. It was, and um, and of course, the trade in ginseng, you know, it was a global trade. It was so desired in the Chinese culture that um, that you know it it did affect the world. In a sense, I mean, so this this plant that is so or was so prevalent in Appalachia was so desired in other parts of the world. I mean, who'd have thunk it, you know, as yeah. they say, <laughs> who'd have thought of it? Um, and it, you know, had to do with the climate and the soil and the biodiversity and all those other kinds of things. Um, so I, one of the key themes in the book is the idea of commons, which was something I'd never really, I'd heard of, but I didn't really know that much about in terms of land and land usage and um, the environment. And so can you talk about that concept of commons? Sure. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, concept. And the term commons has been used to apply to a lot of different things, from intellectual property commons to, you know, to, 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 kind of your classic uh, agricultural commons of feudal age Europe, you know, but this, this specifically, I'm talking about the Appalachian forest commons. And this is something that scholars have recently begun to kind of define and, um, and explore. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard, it's basically what it is. It's a, it's an informal social institution um, that guaranteed members of a community uh, kind of widespread access to the forests around them. Um, so whereas, people own, somebody owned that those forests on paper, they had title to the land. 
it was just co- uh, common practice or, or custom for local folks to be able to go use those that forest for uh, for a variety of purposes, from um, hunting and fishing to gathering firewood to gathering roots and herbs to you know honey. I mean, you name there was a, there was all kinds of ways of using it. And in fact, it was a big important part of their subsistence practices. Um, so it was. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting that, I mean, people in, in a little foreign to, to the way we think of land now, that people could go in the woods and and essentially take ownership of these of these of ginseng, of this lucrative herb. And it, it became the property of the harvester. It was never really assumed to be the property of the landowner. Um, and, you know, so that was one way that the commons was used. And I think um, I think it's 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 a little bit hard to to get at in the historical record. I think um, most people have this idea that when Euro-Americans kind of came in, displaced Cherokee, they imposed the system of private property immediately and it was all absolute, you know, the absolute rights to this property. And um, But it was a lot more messier than that. And even though it was owned, somebody bought it and oftentimes um, somebody back east, uh, you know, an absentee landowner had bought it. Uh, there was still a, a, a kind of a patchwork of informal customary use rights that kind of existed in that in that territory. Um, so, uh, it, yeah, it, it's it's a little bit hard to get at in the historical record. There's not a lot of sources on it. I mean, people didn't talk about it a whole lot. You know, they, a lot of times they just talked about, you know, the woods or the forests. And then but then when but then when the uh, the when their customary use rights were attacked or or threatened to be revoked or something like that, then you see people talking about it in the in the record. You see you see people defending their common rights, sometimes referring to it as commons, kind of, and that and that's a term that goes back to really old Europe that they that they brought over here to apply to these forests. So it's yeah, I think the full history of of the American commons is is, is has yet to be really written. Mm-hmm. We're still working on it. I mean, it was. Uh... It, it, it's fascinating to me. I just, it opened up, I mean, a lot of things were opened up in this book, but it, that opened up something because of my own roots in, in Appalachia. It makes me wonder about, you know, <laughs> what my uh, great grandparents and, and further back uh, would have, would have experienced, you know, did they actually really own their land? At what point did they, did they own it? And, and that brings me to the question of, at what point in history, I mean, I, I, I know there's not an exact date, but at one point in history, where did this start to be questioned or right. become a problem? Right. Whatever. I think, there, first of all, let me, let me say that there's, a, there's a, few different, uh, a few different origins, I think, of this Appalachian Forest Commons. I mean, some of it, I mean, the, the Cherokee treated the forest in the same way, right, as these use rights. So, so you got that. I mean, you also have African Americans and enslaved people coming over here who have practiced the similar practices in Africa. I mean, these commons practices are, are pretty, pretty universal. I mean, you know, especially when you talk about pre-capitalist societies. Um, but, but there was a trend, a, a, a uh, you know, philosophy in Europe based on kind of this Lockean, uh, Lockean idea of property based on the ideas of John Locke, right? That, that. To own to own a piece of property, to enclose it from the commons, you must mix your labor with it, right? So you must you must grow things intentionally. You must you know improve the land, and that's when you that's when you obtain kind of 
uh, a natural right to that land, to that property. And if you therefore, if you didn't improve the land, if you didn't grow this stuff intentionally, it was just kind of open for for everybody. Um, so so that idea, I mean, was fairly you know powerful among these first European settlers. Um, but over time, I mean, these I, I mean, the use of the commons was always subject to negotiation, renegotiation, depending on who owned the land, depending on, you know, who was in the community. And so it wasn't a static institution. It was always kind of changing. And um, after the Civil War, uh, the the Appalachian Commons starts to be, starts to be fragmented, shipped away. Customary use rights are challenged. Um, you start to see fence laws being passed. So now you can't, uh, you can't let your hogs run wild in the forest and feed on the chestnuts anymore. You have to fence them in. Um, they're, you know, hunting, hunting laws. Now you have to get permission of the landowner to hunt on their property in the same way with, uh, with ginseng and roots and herbs by the turn of the 20th century. Uh, there was a variety of laws saying that if you were going to dig these roots and herbs, you had to have permission from the landowner. So, so I think the legal regime shifts after the Civil War and, and really chips away at these customary use rights. Now, some of them continued. I mean, people still tried to dig ginseng on people's private property, and some were successful, depending on the locality. I mean, it's hard to generalize a whole lot, but it was kind of the, um, I'd say, the, the beginning of a, of a long decline of common rights um, that... Uh, you know, and today it's 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 hard. To, there's no right to to these commons resources anymore. I mean, you might be able to go and get a permit to you know gather firewood on U.S. Forest Service land, um, but I think this idea that it was it was kind of a, a right that that you had is, is gone. That's so interesting. It touches on so many things about um, in 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 my field in. in communication we talk so much about individualistic versus collectivist cultures you know and that's um i see how that is you know we are hyper individualistic in the united states and i can see how that is expressed in that you know that it's no longer the commons would have said the greater good the greater of the community right you know um if if, and, and then Locke saying that that you had to be improving it for I mean, we don't think of Locke as being collectivistic necessarily, but he's saying, you know, you have to be doing something for for the land, for the community, if you're going to have this land. Right. And, um, and so it's just fascinating. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, in, in the big debate over really the, the big debate over the commons is, you know, the, the tragedy of the commons, which you, you might have heard of. I mean, it's the idea that and this is something that, you know, conservation biologists talk about a lot and. Um, the idea that commons resources are bound to be overharvested and collapse, right? Because because people have no cons- incentive to conserve it, right? They, um, it's it's common property, so they're not going to bear the burden for overharvesting, so they just do it. And and that's um, the there's been a lot of critiques over that over the years, you know. But I think the central critique focuses on the fact the idea that. That that is based on on a an, on a perception of society that is very hyper individualistic, right. right? So if you're acting entirely as an individual, then you might you might over harvest. But there are community kind of collectivist um, in rest, you know um, methods of restraining those harvests. Like if you if if 
you know, if you if you cared about your neighbors and your neighbors also harvested ginseng and, you know, then then you might not dig it all out when you found it on their property. I mean, you know, there there were something there was something going on there. And yeah. but getting at it. Yeah. I mean, getting at that is really hard, mm-hmm. you know, but it, it is it gets back to that question of, yeah, what were these were these hyper individuals or were there some sort of community ethos that translated into, you know, some sort of conservation of these resources. So, um, yeah, that's an interesting. interesting. Uh, where are some other places where the idea of commons operates? Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, I mean, it's it's fairly universal. You know, it's um, it's on, on all the continents. I mean, if you're talking about non-capitalist, more traditional societies in South America and Africa, I mean, um, people have, have long treated the land in this way, right? You don't own the, 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 you know, a, a piece of the land and, and have the right to exclude everybody from it. You know, that is very Western centric kind of idea of own, ownership. Um, but, 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 but rather they look at land as, um, as, as a, as a complex web of uses, like, you know, it serves purposes, different purposes for different people. And therefore different people can access that land and do different things, you know, and, and, um, so the the idea that people should have access to um, to unimproved land is pretty is pretty widespread, but to, I mean today, you know it's hard. I mean it's it's under um, it's it's under attack. I guess it's fair to say nation or globally um, as this Western system of private property uh, kind of spreads and and. Um, there are parts of the landscape that seem to harbor common rights longer, uh, you know, swamps that are hard to be improved. Uh, you know, uh, some, some of the mountaintops, um, you, you know, the, the, if, if there's not a lot of people and just a lot of space and a lot of woods, then it seems to kind of last longer there. But, um, <laughs> that is fascinating. Um, so to be academics here, what is the main thesis of your book? Um, I warned you about this. Yes, that's right. (laughs) This is a hard one. Um, You know, it's hard to distill it down to one argument. But I think if if I had to, since you're making me, um, I I will say that uh, root digging and herb gathering um, was was an important part of Appalachian economy and Appalachian society for. you know, for over a hundred years, you know, it, um, it I, I think that's kind of the central contribution that I'm making. I mean, it, people knew that Appalachian people did dug roots and herbs, but I don't think people really knew how important it was. So I think my, my book kind of zooms down in and says, this is actually, this is actually a really important part of it. And it was made possible by things like biodiversity and, and commons, right. Common rights. Um, if I was to, branch out my thesis a little bit. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> is ginseng for real? <laughs> I think you, I mean, I think you stayed out of this argument for the most part, as far as its medicinal value, because I read it closely, <laughs> those parts. But considering how lucrative it was for the sang diggers, and I'm using air quotes there, the sang diggers, as they came to be called, and for the merchants of it, was it really worth it? What did it do? <laughs> you know, there there isn't a lot of you know double blind medical studies on on ginseng. Um, you know, there have been some. They have, you know, pharmacists have identified compounds in ginseng called ginsenosides 
that um, are that are active and that have, that that impact uh, the, the functioning the, the um, functioning of the brain. Um, it kind of sharpens the brain. Apparently, it probably it it it, uh, it does kind of um, affect immune systems um, to some extent. Um, but you know the the detailed effects of these are, are still they're still hazy. Um, now the Chinese. They'd been using it for thousands of years and they swore by it, you know, and, and they used it from everything from, you know, just a general tonic to make them feel better, to lighten their mood, you know, as a way to um, uh, they, they use it as an aphrodisiac. Um, they, they use it to kind of balance the yin and the yang, you know. Um, so it, 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 it was kind of a it, it didn't have like an immediate active kind of effect on on the body but it that they believe that it kind of contributed to maintaining balance in the body um so uh it, it you know does it have an effect yes um is it does it have the powerful effects that the chinese kind of claimed it did for 2000 years does it have that kind of high medicinal value I mean, it was the most important herb in their pharmacopoeia you know some Europeans tried to do it, and there and there are accounts of like some people using it and swearing by it. But for the most part, like the medical literature essentially writes it off. I mean, of, of West in Western um, societies in the U.S. and Europe, kind of writes it off as a Chinese superstition. Um, it wasn't active enough for them, you know. That was uh, this was back in the age of humoral theory, where you wanted drugs to make you vomit <laughs> and, and and purge and, and so nothing you know you had to balance the humors right so people would, would bleed people you know so, yeah so the Appalachian people yeah they, yeah they did they did use it some um but it was just so lucrative it was just worth so much money that that they they would rather right they saw it more as a commodity than 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 a medicinal art but i think I think some of them did use it. Okay. Um, the chapter on the stereotype of the Sang diggers was quite a story, especially since it was um, the stereotype was such a fiction or a topic of fiction. Your conclusion there is that the myth developed because it allowed for class distinctions. Um, you know, there's there was at that time, and and I'm not going to say it doesn't exist now, but there was such a a market in class distinctions, you know, that there were certain types of, I mean, the way they're described is just horrible. Like there's some sort of barbaric people, yeah. you know, what's wrong with you? People? Um, the, you know, there was this desire for one class being better or for whatever reason than another. And um, secondly, it represented a tension between the kind of American man that modernity was supposed to need for progress. Um, yet it also um, was a model for how men should be rugged individualists too. So I thought that was an interesting comparison. Um, am I reading that right? Yeah. 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 Um, I, I thought it was interesting too about the two novels you mentioned that were popular in the late 19th century. One was about a woman trying to escape the Sang Digger culture, and she was in need of being saved from it. Uh, she was she was a beautiful young woman, and this family was trying to save her from this barbaric world she lived in, low lives. <laughs> yeah. And um, in in the end, she decides to go back to being a low life, as as I understand it. 
And the other novel was about a virtuous man uh, who lived by cultivating the medicinal medicinal herbs, but in, in going along with that previous uh, idea of the rugged individualist, he had to be a hermit in the sense of uh, being away from other farmers because they didn't understand what he was doing. Um, as a historian, how do you see literature or probably popular writing, which these really fit more into pop culture writing, I think, because they're not really enduring literature that you would, you know, be expected to read academically, you know, today. Um, how do you see literature of a time period getting in the way of your work, but also does it help? Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I feel like, you know, novels um, and any other kind of writing of literature, I mean, it's, it's, um, it gives you a window into the culture, I think, of the time. Um, and, you know, I think cultural history has come pretty big in the last couple of decades, um, but it kind of requires us to, to become, to become, you know, an analyst of literature, you know, which is a little, little different than the historical skill set typically is, you know. So, but, so, but I, but I, but I find it fascinating because, I mean, you know what's happening to ginseng, you know what's happening to, to the roots and herb industry. And so reading these novels with that, with that, with that new context that I've, that I found through my research was, was pretty fascinating. Um, but like you said, I think there is, there is kind of two different things happening in these in this in this literature. Um, first of all, beginning in the eighteen seventies and eighties, just a variety of these writings come out. I mean, in newspaper articles and magazine articles, and um, and they're they're fascinated with these sang diggers and sangers. Um, they call them different things, but these people that seem to live in the woods, you know. And um, I, I, what I think is happening here is that they're, they're it's a it's a it's a conundrum. It's a problem, right? This is um, this is they seem anachronistic. This is we're supposed to be a modernizing nation. We're supposed to be an industrializing nation, right? And um, and this is a time also when we are engaging with the rest of the world. We are colonizing, you know, the Philippines. We are we are uh, annexing Hawaii. We are we are kind of and, and we are developing this 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 idea of racial hierarchy, right? That that Anglo-Saxons and I mean, it was it was older than this, but this is when it was people were talking about it a lot, right? Anglo-Saxons stood at the pinnacle, and they had the right to colonize these other peoples, right? Non-white peoples who were lesser down on the scale of civilization, right? So, so they, these sang diggers seem to be, you know, lower down on the levels of civilization, or, or yeah. But they were Anglo-Saxon, right? So, it, you know, it was like, what do we do with this? That's right. They fell out of the tree somewhere. So, it, you know, so some people, I mean, they dealt with it in different ways. They, they said that they were, um, they, some, some of the writers said that they weren't Anglo-Saxon. They, were, they, were, they weren't white. Um, and uh, they, they mentioned they tried to act like they were, you know, they were, uh, had some Indian blood, had some Native or African American blood. You know, anyways, tried to tried to kind of excise them yeah. from the English, from the, from the rest of Anglo-Saxon Appalachia. Um, but you know, I think I think there was also a time where people, you know, were expected to be were expected to contribute to industrial society. Right? You were you were supposed to be a wage worker. You were supposed to kind of kind of, um, you know, be a part of the modernizing project. And you couldn't just live in the forest and do your own thing and, you know, follow your own, uh, your own culture. And so, um, so these, this really fantastical literature developed where these people became like the, the backward of the most, you know, the most backward of an already backward region in their mind. Right. So, um, so th th by, 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 
characterizing him in this way. In some ways, they were promoting a a, a more modern way of interacting with land, interacting with nature, um, and um, a modern way of interacting with the rest of society. Right? You wanted to be a part of that industrial machine, um, and um, so that I think that, that explains some of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think that there was a kind of a counter movement at the time. Um, embodied by people like Teddy Roosevelt and the Back to the Land movement and the Boy Scouts and all this, right? This idea that we needed this primitive masculinity to, to, to help, you know, help bring the United States to its, you know, to its global glory and, and that sort of thing. So, so in, in some ways, the, um, the West becomes very, um, you know, um, very popular in the American imagination. And this, this, these pioneers and these rugged individuals, as you're saying, become really important to this story. And so some writers tended to think, see the saying diggers in that sense. Like they were, they were, they were living in the forest like pioneers. They were, you know, so, so there's like this, this dual nature of the stereotype, very positive one, uh, or, or tended to be a little bit more positive or at least virtuous, somewhat virtuous and, and a very negative backward one. Yeah. And it seems like the negative one has, has, um, has sort of been, generalized and um and it remained yeah you know yeah. that that appalachian is just benighted and um something's they're just they're just not right <laughs> right right <laughs> you know right. uh which is them, you know and poor. and uh, you know it not to get political but you know jd vance won uh the senate primary and we won't get into that but in ohio of all places although ohio is considered uh partially Appalachian. I, I went to uh, grad school there and um, it was considered the part I was in was Appalachian. And, um, you know, I remember when the book came out, we had a very heated discussion on campus about we had, uh, I did not read it at the time and I still haven't read it really. I just watched the movie, but that's not the same thing. And um, one of the professors was just mortified, angered by the book, you know, and it's, in its portrayal of, of Appalachia, you know, and, um, and others were, I don't know, would seem to be more like, well, yeah, this is the way it is. And, <laughs> you know, it was just interesting to sit back in those situations and say, oh yeah, what's going on here. But, um, you know, I, I've, I've wondered about that. If the outside world, people who are not of Appalachia, um, experienced that book so much differently than those uh, those of us who are in it or of it yeah I, I think I think that's some of what's happening I mean you know I think Appalachian scholars and Appalachian people I mean are 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 sensitive to these stereotypes and that's essentially what it was right this guy was Vance seems to be blaming the poverty and the problems of his family on their Appalachianness, right? On their hillbilliness, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that, the, the, I mean, not to say some of those problems don't exist, but the fact that he kind of locates them in the fact that they were from the mountains that they, you know, um, at least to, to, to a lot of Appalachian people and scholars, they, they, they saw it that way. Um, and, um, and, and it, and it played, and it just played into this, you know, this culture of poverty thesis that goes back to the, you know, um, turn of the century that there was something um, inherently kind of wrong with these people and that they just needed to kind of be educated and, you know, to, to 
to, to bring themselves out of it like he did, right? Like Vance did because he, he got out of it. Um, but, uh, that, that's, that's, that was the, that was the path forward, you know, and, and it just ignores a lot of historical forces that, um, that kept the region in poverty. I mean, you know, the whole, uh, the whole, you know, exploitation of the region by, by outside corporations, the patterns of absentee ownership. I mean, there was a lot of reasons that, um, you know, the Appalachian communities, um, well, got, got poor in the early 20th century and then remained poor and sometimes got poorer, you know, um, not just the, the, the people themselves. The lumber companies, too, mm-hmm. um, uh, in in re- regard to when they created the, um, oh, excuse me, the, the Smoky Mountains. Yeah. Yeah. Smoky Mountain Forest. Um, national forest and then the the coal companies and for example where my people are from southwestern virginia and um that you know they they had to buy land from the people from you know so by then families or men owned the land um although i imagine there were still the absentee folks who were just you know giving selling the land because they didn't care but um you know that's a that's a whole other thing too, but that would have come into the issue of the commons because they couldn't just act like the the coal was commons. They were, I mean, they had to buy the land to have rights right. to it. So right, and that and that made land it commodified land further. Right, it, 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 but now that the trees are valuable, then then you know you're you're going to exclude people from that land. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that the coming of the industry definitely played a role in closing the commons. Um, but yeah, yeah, the coal, um, coal and timber, the arrival of coal and timber uh, were huge, uh, and especially timber too. I mean, because you're, now you're now you're really just destroying the commons. Um, yeah. And 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 coal later when strip mining becomes important, you know, and, and mountaintop removal. I mean, now you're just removing the commons. I mean, so so it was, and and what it did ultimately is it made Appalachian people dependent on that industrial economy. You know, it made them dependent on this global. Um, global economy that was fluctuating and subject to kind of ebbs and flows. Um, and, uh, and they were no longer, you know, independent on the land like they had been, um, and, uh, dependent on farming and the forest for, 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 for a livelihood. So I sat and read the book for hours. I was never bored and the writing is very lucid, never academic in the bad way that we say. <laughs> what else have you published? Um, so uh, I, I've published a few articles um, on the, this uh, on this research uh, in various academic journals, um, but I think I've always written. Um, I, I used to think I was going to be a novelist uh, when I was about ten years old. <laughs> I wrote a bunch of stories, and then and then I and then I uh, and then I uh, like I said worked for a newspaper. Uh, I was a staff writer for a couple of years for this small weekly paper in Murphy, North Carolina, and um, you know wrote a lot of a lot of stories for them so um um you know but that's that's about the extent of it maybe one day i'll write well i i encourage you to to write fiction uh if that's where your heart lies but i i don't encourage it as a as a life choice (laughs) (laughs) because i do it and i love it and it's part of who i am but it's not exactly something that's gonna keep me 
uh, help me in retirement uh, <laughs> as I would like. Yeah. Um, as I've mentioned, I have deep roots in Appalachia myself. And in fact, chapter six starts with a story in 1908 of a ginseng harvester in Wise County, Virginia. And my mother's people are from that area, more specifically Dickinson County, which is right next door. Um, I am working on a novel about a woman in 1906 to 1918. So that um, uh, caught my eye because I do have reference to a man who digs uh, ginseng along with moonshining <laughs> to keep his to keep his family fed. And in um, in of course, in my family, I have more information about the moonshining they did than the ginseng harvesting digging, really. So this book was interesting to me from that perspective. Um, but I will have to say it was my step grandfather was not anybody in exactly my family. So um, so <laughs> he was a character. So this book was interesting to me from that perspective as, um, and um, as well as that it's a, such an achievement for one of my colleagues. Um and I have another question. Um, I went to your website. What do you want to say about your website? Yeah. So um, my website is the, the southernhighlander.org. Um, and this is, uh, you know, just a place where I, I put some stuff that I'm working on. If I, if I find some interesting, you know, sources and I can write them off, write, write about it. And, um, but I also um, like to showcase some of my students, some of my best students work there. So um, when I teach Appalachian history, um, we've done some projects that that are that are up on the website. So if you have any interest in in the region's history, uh, check it out. The the southernhighlander.org. And you are a musician. Talk about that. <laughs> I've seen you play. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I, I love playing. I love making music. I love creating music um something i think about appalachian people is you know they love to create music um and, and listen to music so I, I i i don't do it i used to perform some here and there but pretty much the only time i do it now is around the campfire with friends so what has been happening since the publication of this book and what else are you working on so yeah it's been it's been kind of crazy and uh you know i think i think book sales have been pretty good i think people are interested in the topic so mm -hmm. It's uh, it's it's been it's been wild to have you know family members you haven't talked to in years and years, <laughs> you know, call you and like yeah, I bought your book. I'm like whoa, crazy. <laughs> and it's a hard, it's it's hard, it's hard to do. It takes discipline and time, and I got a whole new appreciation for people who can sit there and write books. So, kudos to you and all you authors out there. Thank you for being on our podcast, Dr. Luke Monjay, PhD from the University of Georgia, and. I highly recommend his book, Ginseng Diggers, published by University of Kentucky Press. This interview took place with Dr. Luke Manger in May 2022. Soon after, he took a position at the North Carolina School of Science and Mathematics. We thank him for sitting down with us and discussing his very interesting book, Ginseng Diggers. Thank you for listening.